This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. A new Auschwitz. That's what the mayor of Mariupol is calling the city after weeks of relentless Russian bombardment. He says the city has become a death camp beyond what was seen in Chechnya or Aleppo. Local officials say Russian forces are using mobile crematoria to dispose of the victims. CNN is unable to verify that claim. We're hearing of more alleged civilian executions in Borodyanka, northwest of Kyiv. Local police say hundreds could be buried under the rubble of apartment buildings leveled by Russian forces. And President Putin continues to shift his focus towards the east and the so-called liberation of the Donbass region. Military analysts are warning that could take months, if not years. Meanwhile, more attacks on civilians in the south in Mykolaiv. Security footage caught the moment an ambulance parked outside a children's hospital was struck by shell fire on Monday. At least 167 children have been killed since the Russian invasion began, according to President Zelensky. Pope Francis, too, the latest to condemn the attacks on civilians. You can see there the pontiff unfurling a battered flag from Boucher during his Vatican address. You can also hear the reaction. Today, President Biden will unveil fresh sanctions against Russia, including some aimed at Vladimir Putin's two adult daughters. And in the coming hours, NATO foreign ministers will meet and any moment we'll hear from the NATO Secretary General too. On Tuesday, President Zelensky delivered a fiery address to the United Nations Security Council, even questioning their existence. You can do two things. Either remove Russia as an aggressor and a source of war, so it cannot block decisions about its own aggression, its own war. Or the other option is please show how we can reform or change and work for peace. Or, if there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. The president also warned of more atrocities, this time in Borodyanka, another Ukrainian city which, until recently, was occupied by Russian troops. CNN's Frederick Pleikland was there to witness the aftermath. And again, a warning that some of the images and details in his report are graphic and they're disturbing. In the war that Russia has unleashed against Ukraine, few places have suffered more than Borodyanka. Occupied by Vladimir Putin's troops since late February, recently taken back by Ukraine's army. Borodyanka was held by the Russians for a very long time. And just to give you an idea about the scale of the destruction, you have houses like these that were completely destroyed. But if we look over here, you can see that even large residential buildings have been flattened. This entire building was flattened. It was connected with this one before, but now there's absolutely nothing left of it. And the Russians made sure to show they owned this town, painting the letter V on occupied buildings, even defacing Borodyanka's city administration. V is the letter the Russians used to help identify their forces that invaded this part of Ukraine. Oksana Kostichenko and her husband just returned here and found Russian soldiers had been staying in their house. She says they ransacked the place. Alcohol is everywhere, she says. Empty bottles in the hallway under things. They smoked a lot, put out cigarettes on the table. They also showed us the corpse of a man they found in their backyard. His hands and feet tied, severe bruises on his body, a shell casing still nearby. 
Russia claims its forces don't target civilians, calling reports of atrocities fake and provocations. But these body collectors are the ones who have to remove the carnage Russia's military leaves in its wake. In a span of less than an hour, they found a person gunned down while riding a bicycle, a body burned beyond recognition, and a man still stuck in his car gunned down with bullet holes in his head and chest. He was believed to be transporting medical supplies now strewn near this road. The most awful thing is, those are not soldiers laying there, just people, innocent people, Gennady says. For no reason, I ask. Yes, for no reason. Killed and tortured for no reason, he says. The road from Kiev to Borodyanka is lined with villages heavily damaged after Russia's occupation destroyed tanks and armored vehicles left behind, but also indications of just how much firepower they unleashed on this area. The Russians say this is a special operation, not a war, and that they don't harm civilians. But look how much ammunition they left behind simply in this one single firing position here. This is ammunition for heavy weapons with devastating effects on civilian areas. That devastation cuts through the towns and villages north of Kiev, where the number of dead continues to rise. Now that Vladimir Putin's armies have withdrawn, Ukraine's leaders still believe many more bodies could be buried beneath the rubble. Fred Pletkin, CNN, Borodyanka, Ukraine. Heavy fighting underway in eastern Ukraine with officials in the Luhansk region urging people to evacuate. This as the southeastern port city of Mariupol continues to be bombarded by Russian forces. The ON says nearly 1,500 civilians have been killed and over 2,100 injured since the war began. Ivan Watson spoke with some of the most severely wounded Ukrainians and he joins us now. Ivan, good to have you with us. Uh, it's important, I think, that our viewers see the price being paid by ordinary Ukrainians. But I have to say some of this is pretty unbearable to watch, never mind the suffering that these people are, are going through. It is. I mean, uh, I just uh, a little bit of news here in Zaporizhia, uh, Julia. The International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, a, a team uh, spent four days, uh, four nights and five days trying to get to that city of Mariupol that you mentioned to help deliver humanitarian aid to the trapped civilian population there, uh, encircled by the Russian siege of that city, and also to help evacuate civilians. They were not able to reach the city, presumably because they were stopped by the Russian military, which controls the surrounding countryside. And they were actually detained for a night, Sunday to Monday. Uh, but they were able to return finally across front lines here to Zaporizhia in the past couple of hours in a convoy bringing some 500 Ukrainian civilians here to Ukrainian-controlled territory, uh, which is an immense relief for people who were trying to get to safer territory. Uh, when it comes to the physical cost, that this war is uh, incurring on ordinary people. One place where you can see it is in the hospitals. It is very disturbing, uh, difficult to see up close. Uh, so I have to warn viewers uh, that the images in this next report uh, are deeply disturbing. Shattered bodies in the intensive care unit of a Ukrainian hospital. Men and women from the Ukrainian military whose war wounds are so catastrophic they need machines to breathe. 
these deeply uncomfortable images, a glimpse of the physical toll this conflict is taking on both soldiers and civilians. The general director of the hospital says that after the first couple of days of this new war, at least 30 medical personnel resigned because of just the trauma of seeing these kinds of injuries up close. A soldier named Yuri wants to communicate. He can't speak because he's still on a ventilator. He has regained consciousness after 11 days in a coma. We won't identify him because doctors say his family does not yet know of his injuries. He has one child, Malchik. A daughter, he signals, 13 years old. Writing in my notebook, Yuri tells me he's been in the military for two years. The doctors say that he has a very good chance of surviving very serious shrapnel injuries to his body. We were given permission to film here, provided we not name the hospital nor the city that we're in. And that's because the Ukrainian authorities fear that that information could lead to the Russian military directly targeting this hospital. In every room here, there's a patient whose bones and tissues have been ripped apart by flying metal. Vladimir is a volunteer. He signed up on the second day of this war in 2022. This electrician turned volunteer soldier comes from the Russian-speaking city of Kharkiv. Three days ago, a battle left him with two broken arms and wounds to the stomach. Vladimir says his sister lives in Russia and he no longer communicates with her. I asked why. He said that she believes that the Ukrainians are enemies. This is a family that is split apart by this war and different narratives of who started it. Vladimir and the soldier with a fresh amputation lying next to him both insist that only force can stop Russia's war on this country. Down the hall, I meet a young civilian, also horrifically wounded. 21. Dima is 21 years old. Where, where are you from? Dima is a recent university graduate, photographed here with his mother, Natasha. My mother died when this happened to me, he says, adding, I've cried it off already. I'm calmer now. He says on the night of March 9th, he and his mother were hiding in the bathroom of a two-story house in the center of Mariupol when they heard warplanes overhead bombing the neighborhood. Mother and son were hiding in the bathroom shortly before 1 a.m., he says, when the bomb hit the house. When he woke up, his legs were gone. He never saw his mother again. During my visit, a friend gives Dima a phone. This is the first time he's seeing the building where he and his mother were sheltering when they were hit. Uh, the red car here that is destroyed in front of the ruined building was his mother's car. Of course I get angry. I get sad. I get depressed at times, but I can't lose my cool. Because those who did this to me, they probably want me to sit here crying and weeping. Don't let the silence in these halls fool you. There is deep, seething anger in this hospital at the country that launched this unprovoked war on Ukraine. Now, Julia, the 
Ukrainian authorities desire and their demand to keep the name of the hospital and its location secret is not driven by paranoia. The United Nations says it has documented at least 85 attacks on health facilities since the Russian military invaded Ukraine. 85 attacks, that's more than one a day, which killed at least 72 people. The aid organization Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, their team in the southern Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv personally witnessed and survived an attack on the city's oncology hospital uh, that also struck the neighboring pediatric hospital with what the team thinks may have been cluster munitions. And there's actually security camera footage of what appears to be this attack where you can see parked ambulances being hit by explosions. Doctors Without Borders, they say that they saw at least one person dead after the attack. The vehicles, the windows of their own vehicle were blown in by the blasts. And they say that there were at least three attacks. Uh, there were at least three hospitals attacked in just two days in Mykolaiv in this week. So there is a pattern of hospitals being hit and it's happening so frequently that it suggests it is deliberate. Julia. Yeah, it, it feels like systematic targeting, to your point. My mind goes to President Zelensky when he was speaking to the UN Security Council yesterday and questioning their purpose in, in the face of this. Uh, what more can be done? Uh, Ivan, I wanted to ask you about Yuri, who was one of the first victims that you spoke to there and you couldn't show his face. And he said that he had the 13-year-old daughter, but his family weren't aware yet of his, his shrapnel injuries. Do you know why? Is that because his family's been evacuated or, or why they haven't been able to contact his family and, and let them know? I, I would only be able to speculate. And, and you're mm -hmm. right to stress the fact that there are millions and millions of Ukrainians who've been displaced mm -hmm. uh, across borders, uh, more than four million refugees, uh, and internally in Ukraine as well. In the case of that soldier, he also has the complicating factor that he was in a coma for 11 days uh, and had just regained consciousness for about two days by the time we met him. So there may not have been a means of communication with mm. uh, the family at that stage. I'll add one additional heartbreaking detail that I learned in the visit there is that the, the hospital administrators say that they have mothers coming to their hospital every day looking for missing children, presumably in the armed forces, uh, and that sometimes they simply cannot answer uh, the whereabouts of, of people who are missing. And another just absolutely staggering anecdote, just a nightmare that was described to me. They said that a family, civilians pulled up in a car with their adult daughter in the back of the car with her head severed from her body. And that the family was asking at that point if there was anything that the medical staff could do to help their daughter, who clearly uh, was dead, had been killed uh, by that attack. I'm giving that as an example of there are ordinary people who are not prepared to deal with the trauma and the shock of what is happening to their communities with devastating weapons that are being fired from miles, from kilometers away, who are then struggling to deal with something that I don't think you or I or any viewer could ever begin to, to have to begin to face 
and people are being thrust into these positions and are, are, are struggling with the reality that none of us should ever have to deal with. Julia. I couldn't agree more. Ivan, thank you for sharing it because we need to know these things. We need to understand these things. And our hearts are with all of those families and all of those people. Ivan Watson there, thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back. The United States and its allies are expected to announce sweeping new penalties as soon as today, targeting the Russian president's children, as well as Russian government officials and their family members. New sanctions on Russian banks are expected too. All this as Russia finds it increasingly difficult to make payments on its own foreign debt. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, what can we expect from the United States and the EU today? Yeah, both, uh, Julia, clearly accelerating their their sanctions regimes, their timelines in response to the horrific images we're seeing uh, coming out of Ukraine, particularly the, the towns formerly occupied by Russia. We're expecting to hear from the U.S. that they're really sort of tightening existing categories of sanctions, things like uh, a, a banning new investment in Russia. They had previously banned investment in the energy sector, tightening sanctions on financial institutions and state-owned enterprises, more individuals likely to be sanctioned, sanctioned including perhaps the adult daughters uh, of Vladimir Putin himself. We don't know much about them uh, or their whereabouts. That's according to uh, an administration uh, official. But when it comes to the EU, we know that today EU ambassadors are meeting. We're hearing from uh, EU sources that there is broad uh, agreement on the need to move quickly to adopt this fifth package uh, of sanctions that's been proposed, that they are ironing out technicalities and the talks could go into tomorrow. But this is really significant because the EU is now going there, Julia, and there is energy. They have proposed a full ban on uh, coal imports from Russia. That is very significant. The EU is the biggest customer uh, for Russian coal. It is the smallest uh, sort of of the fossil fuels. Oil and gas are clearly much bigger, uh, but very significant in itself. It shows that they're willing to take that step and inflict that potential price rises and disruption on their citizens. And they have said, Ursula von der Leyen said today, that this won't be the end of it. There will be more sanctions uh, and, and they will look into oil, she said. Yeah, and energy, of course, is the Achilles heel to the broader sanctions package because so much cash is pumped to Russia in order to pay for it from the EU. We've talked about it on the show before. It was quantified today by the EU's high representative, Joseph Borrell, and he also provided a contrast. How much money is paid in terms of uh, oil and gas supplies that come into the EU, but also how much economic support has been provided to Ukraine? Just listen to this. We have given Ukraine 1 billion euros. It might seem a lot, but 1 billion euros is what we pay Putin every day for the energy he provides us. Since the beginning of the war, we have given him 35 billion euros. Compare that to the 1 billion euros that we have given to Ukraine in arms and weapons. 35 billion euros paid to Russia since this war began for EU energy supplies. That has a cushioning effect on the Russian economy, Claire, but we are seeing signs of the impact of the sanctions too. Yeah, it's definitely worth noting, Julia, that, that sanctions are a moving target. So as they come in gradually, the Russian economy does adapt. And we've seen it show resilience in the fact, for example, that the ruble has now rebounded mostly uh, to the level it was when the war broke out. But we are seeing uh, certainly weak points. This is an economy that, it, that is very hard hit by these sanctions. For example, the measure that the US brought in this week to, to ban Russia from paying down its debt using those frozen reserves, it had previously allowed them to keep doing that. That means that Russia 
Russia will have to use either the unfrozen half of its foreign currency reserves or new revenue that could push it closer to, to a default. The Russian government, though, denying that. The Speaker of the, the State Duma saying today that this only hurts the U.S., that, that Russia has the money to make these payments and it just weakens trust uh, in the dollar. Uh, and there's another sort of window onto the Russian economy that, that I want to bring you because it is it is difficult to get a, sort of a true sense of what's happening there. The car market seems to be sort of in some kind of collapse. Sales uh, were down 63% of new cars uh, in March, according to the Association of European Businesses, which represents foreign investors in Russia. That is because of a combination of factors. The collapse in the ruble is raising prices. A lot of foreign car makers uh, have pulled out, stopped production, banned exports. But we're also seeing that, 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 that local car makers, the likes of Avtovaz, which is Russia's biggest car maker, accounted for about one in five sales last year. They uh, are really having to, to sort of try to step in to rescue their supply chains, redesign cars, uh, even that, that use less foreign components. The point of all this is that the isolation is affecting Russia. The government is scrambling to try to cope with it to prevent mass unemployment and a drop in living standards. And it is feeling the squeeze even as these sanctions regimes tighten. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You wonder how much of that decline, though, is about the supply chains and how much is down to sheer demand perhaps not being there or adjusting in the face of the challenges. But we can only guess. Claire Sebastian. Thank you so much for that. We'll discuss this further later on in the show. For now, let's talk about the spillover effects. Ukraine's neighboring country of Poland has seen more than two million refugees cross its border, mostly women and children. They're finding safety in shelters, homes and even office buildings. CNN's Kung La has more. This office building in downtown Warsaw is not just real estate. It's refuge. Ukrainian children play with toys in what used to be a storage room. Strollers sit in corporate hallways. Computer desks are dining room tables. Two stories of the seventh floor office building are now home to refugees. Like 18-month-old Milana and her mother. We feel safe, she says. There's no sirens, no horrible sounds. Two and a half million Ukrainians, nearly all women and children, have crossed into Poland since the start of the war. And you just removed the lights? Yes, we removed the lights and we installed this here. The country has managed to absorb them in just six weeks through ingenuity. Like elevators that serves offices and behind the column there is an elevator that serves uh, just refugees. Anna Fialkowska is CEO for TFG Asset Management, which owns the building. We have beds and uh, shelves, whatever is necessary. The war started on a Thursday. The company had the space available and pivoted from commerce to crisis. So here we had like a small reception desk. Three days later. None of this existed. It was just a matter of putting an additional installation in piping. They had the first of nearly 250 women and children move in. We have this place. We can do something do something for real people, right? So we just decided to do it. Was that the hard part or the easy part? Uh, that was the easiest part, to set it up. The hardest part right now is to make them feel good, solve their problems, the refugees' problems. I'm from Ukraine. Seven-year-old Margot lives here with her mother, Oksana Karobka. <laughs> this used to be office furniture, she explains with the addition of a donated bed 
Oh, it is. It's pretty, it's pretty comfortable. This has been home since the start of the war. Korobka is an accountant. Her husband fights in Dnipro, near the eastern flank. Oh, it's your husband? No, please talk to him. They never know when he'll be able to call. This is my husband, Max. I can't comprehend it, says Korobka. It's as if we're in a 40-day horror movie and we can't wake up. One floor above, employees do their best to carry on with their jobs. I do not know anybody who is saying, I don't care. Everybody cares. Everybody wants to help. His employees sending whatever they can downstairs. Whatever is needed, uh, either desks, either vacuum cleaners, we, we just try to help as supplements to our new neighbors. But war has meant the days of business as usual are over. We really also learning from them. We see how they are coping with these tragic events and this tragic situation. And it's really make you feel happy, but also makes you feel uh, that you're doing something good. Kyungla, CNN, Warsaw, Poland. Coming up, food shortages, rampant inflation and soaring unemployment. A former economic advisor to Moscow predicting a GDP plunge of 20% and a 50% inflationary surge. His perspective just ahead. Welcome back. To many observers in the West, evidence of Russian atrocities in Busha and other Ukrainian cities is irrefutable and clear evidence of war crimes. For Moscow, though, and its supporters on Kremlin-controlled media, the Busha massacre is part of an elaborate hoax intended to weaken Russia and topple its leaders. Matthew Chance reports on this increasingly heated war of words and images. And we must warn you, many of the images in this report are graphic. If you think Russian soldiers are humans, he says, just look at this. The shocked words of a Ukrainian driver recording these appalling scenes on the road into Butcher. But what took place here is beyond words beyond outrage. Ukrainian officials say the bodies being retrieved are of civilians killed by Russian forces in the town. Some with their hands tied behind their backs before being shot dead. Evidence of war crimes. The charge the Kremlin and its propaganda machine is categorically denying. This is how one of the top anchors on Russian state television explained the massacre. It must have been the work of British specialists, he says, because the town of Butcher and the English word butcher sounds so similar. Maybe it's a joke, but no one's laughing. Certainly not the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who's dubbed the killings a well-staged, tragic show and a forgery to try to denigrate the Russian army. A huge amount of data, he told journalists, clearly indicates this is faked. Staged, say Russian officials, after their troops 
had left. But satellite images of Butcher, first published by the New York Times, show bodies had been strewn across the streets there for weeks, at least from March the 18th, when the town was under Russian control. Photographic evidence that contradicts the Kremlin's claims. It's also raising concerns that more killings will be unearthed as Russian forces withdraw. The Ukrainian president, seen here visiting Butcher, accusing Russia of trying to hide the traces of their crimes in other parts of Ukraine that remain under Russian control. It makes a peace deal even harder. Every day we find people in barrels, strangled or tortured in basements, President Zelensky says. It's very difficult to negotiate when you see what they have done here, he adds. It is sickening to accept, but the sacrifice of these people may have actually pushed back the chances of peace in Ukraine instead of bringing this appalling conflict to an end. Matthew Chance, CNN. Russians may question the authenticity of images coming from the Ukraine war. It will be much harder for them to avoid the economic fallout from the conflict. Russia now facing a fifth round of Western sanctions, as we've discussed, set to be announced as soon as today, targeting the government elite and their families, as well as banks and state-owned businesses and the energy sector too. My next guest says sanctions could trigger a 20% plunge in Russia's GDP this year. And President Putin has made Russia fail as a state. Anders Osland is a former economic advisor to both Russia and Ukraine and the author of the book Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Anders, great to have you on the show. When I saw you tweet that point about a failed state, I googled the definition to remind myself and the definition from that I saw was that when the political and economic system becomes so weak, the government is no longer in control. We're not there yet. No, but we are very uh, close to it. What Putin has done very systematically is that he has uh, deinstitutionalized uh, uh, Russia. So there is only one strong institution apart from the president, and that's uh, 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 a secret uh, uh, police. And you can't really run a state like this. Russia has not had economic growth since uh, 2014. That is when Russia started attacking Ukraine and the Western uh, sanction the hit. And uh, there are no values that are being uh, promoted by this regime. Putin looks increasingly like Adolf Hitler, a wild, uh, mystical idea of a thousand-year uh, 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 realm without anything that he wants to do for the people. As you've said, and you've said it many times, he looks disinterested in developing the Russian economy. He's created social misery. You also say he's proven he's unable to govern. If we're close to that point of failed state where you see some kind of response from the people, how far away are we, Anders? Because that's crucial for Ukraine today. Yeah, it's very difficult to know, of course. But uh, 
uh, there are two big problems. One is uh, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, which I think Russia is losing, and the other is uh, the economic uh, problems uh, in Russia. So we can simplify the war in Ukraine to two big battles. The battle of Kiev that Ukraine has won, and now we are expecting a big battle uh, over Donbass. My guess is that Ukraine will win that also. And then I think that uh, uh, Putin looks like Tsar uh, uh, Nicholas II after the Russia-Japanese war, which started the revolution in Russia that didn't bring him down then, but really weakened uh, the Tsar's uh, power for, uh, forever. And the other is the economic situation, where we right now have a sort of lull. Uh, things have calmed down. The ruble has come back, thanks to big interventions by the central bank, uh, abolishing the convertibility of the ruble and uh, lots of regulations. But that is not likely to hold. And the big thing that was mentioned here before, it is that automotive production, tank production, uh, all of it will stop because they don't have semi-computers uh, uh, and uh, conductors and other uh, details. So lots of the manufacturing is set to stop, but it has not stopped as yet because it's dependent on imports that will no longer be coming. I mean, when you're talking about a GDP drop of, of 20%, of inflation of 50%, we're talking economic depression-style economics. Is that what we see this year, or does that lull that you're talking about persist for a while? I know it's so difficult to gauge what's going on, but again, it's, it's this pressure of every minute counting in terms of this war. Well, uh, I would expect a real collapse. Uh, one of these uh, shocks uh, should be sufficient uh, uh, to take out a leader. But uh, uh, when I talk to Russian opposition people, they say that uh, Putin's uh, secret police is far too strong. So uh, a coup from the top is not possible. So they uh, rather uh, hope for uh, a collapse from uh, below. But uh, with the Russian propaganda being extremely hard and uh, the latest uh, seemingly independent uh, poll from the Levada Center uh, claimed that 83 percent uh, of the Russians approve of Putin, that makes it difficult. Putin has a majority in Russia uh, behind him while he has perhaps one third firmly against, uh, against him. And uh, then it's difficult to get uh, a nation to, to wake up. Russia is so isolated and so disinformed today. Mm. I mean, I guess my next question would be, when does the effect become so damaging, whether it's people fighting over food, hyperinflation, for example, it doesn't matter who you blame, whether it's the government and their actions or the West for their actions over sanctions and how that's portrayed. It's the pure misery internally that creates a backlash. When do you get to that point? Well, I think if you get serious backlash, it will probably uh, come fast. When the U.S. imposed its severe sanctions on Venezuela in 2019, right. uh, GDP fell by 35 percent, and it looks as if uh, uh, looked as if Maduro would fall. He didn't. He survived. 
and now he looks uh, pretty uh, safe in his place. We've also seen uh, economic catastrophes in uh, North Korea, Iran, uh, Zimbabwe, and the rulers have uh, uh, stayed in place. So it's not obvious, but the combination of a, a lost war and economic catastrophe should naturally lead to, to a change, but there's no guarantee. If yeah. it comes, it will come early. And we've gone full circle on the prospect of being a failed state, but still the government, the leadership remaining in place. Um, you raised a very important point that I want to, to bring to people too, and it's about connecting the dots of what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. And we know the consequences of this in combination with what we've been through in the last two to three years, pricing pressures, uh, food shortages, for example. We're seeing political wobbles in countries like Sri Lanka, in, in Pakistan, severe wobbles I'm talking about with the economic pressures that we're seeing. The consequences of this war and the spillover effects could bring down other governments and create political instability in many other parts of the world. Indeed, I'm happy that you mentioned Sri Lanka and Pakistan because yeah. uh, why are they having problem? Mainly because of high uh, wheat prices, because they're highly dependent on, on wheat. Other countries in that category are Egypt, where we would expect uh, uh, problems because wheat prices are now up uh, three, four times from what they were, and they will rise further because 30% uh, of all wheat uh, that is being exported in the world comes from the Black Sea. And the Russians have now mined all the Ukrainian ports, so nothing can come out uh, from them. So uh, there will be worse uh, problems in uh, emerging economies because of this. Oh, but you also raise a very important point as well, I think, in terms of the discussion about secondary sanctions. You've pointed out that shipping is a hole in the restrictions that have been created. And it's very important for the cushioning effect of purchasing countries like China and India. There needs to be a firm look at perhaps sanctioning the biggest shipping company in Russia, too. And just talk to me about this, because this is another potential pivot point and an asphyxiation point, I think, for the Russian economy, for better or worse. Yeah, Sovconflot is the, the big Russian state shipping company. The UK has sanctioned it so far, and I would guess that the EU and the US will also do so. But what the EU is doing today, uh, if I follow through, is that they are sanctioning all shipping. The three Baltic countries have already done so, so that no Russian ship will be allowed to enter a European port. And the most important part of this is that uh, the Russian oil, by and large, goes out through uh, ports around St. Petersburg in relatively small tankers. And then the, the oil goes to Rotterdam in the Netherlands and it's being reloaded there. And for example, sent to uh, China and, uh, and India, uh, with Rotterdam being sanctioned, that's uh, most of Russia's uh, oil exports. So this is almost as effective as uh, a sanctioning of, uh, of Russian oil, or say of half of its, uh, uh, its oil. And you could add to that insurance, which I think will be uh, coming up next. And people don't think of insurance because it's so obscure. But you can't transport anything without insurance. Yes, if you can't insure those ships, then you can't send them around the world, which is an important point too. And also 
to your point as well about the need for help for Ukraine to deal with those mines that are now there as well. And it's great to chat to you. I could keep you talking for another 30 minutes, but I have to let you go. Um, Anders Oslan there, former economic advisor to both Russia and Ukraine and the author of the book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path for Market Economy to Kleptocracy. A good read. We're back after this. Thank you. Stay with us. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. Full credit to Lithuania, the first EU country to stop all imports of Russian gas. And it's urging other countries to do the same. Our Richard Quest spoke to the president about that decision. If we are talking about the energy sector, this was a story of blackmailing and pressure. So this was the reason why we decided very early to uh, implement very important infrastructure projects in my country. And I would like to mention also oil terminal, uh, which was built in 1999. It allowed us to import crude oil uh, through the Baltic Sea. And you mentioned uh, LNG terminal, which was built in 2014 with the symbolic name independence. Actually, this is a cornerstone of our independence from the natural gas uh, from Russia. So this is the reason why we have decided to stop to buy uh, Russian oil and uh, Russian gas. And we would like that uh, other countries of European Union would follow our example. Uh, or um, uh, other countries of Baltic right. region, Latvia and Estonia, followed, followed our example immediately. So if we take Germany, France, Czech Republic, all those other countries, the Netherlands, that are very large net importers and say that they can't do it immediately. Well, Mr. President, there's genocide that's been going on in Europe. If they can't stop it now, if they can't stop imports now, what do you say? We have to do what we can in order to stop this violence, to stop these atrocities of Putin's war. And uh, we made our contribution uh, to, uh, to these efforts. And I think our colleagues could do the same. Netherlands, Germany, other countries. I understand the situation is uh, slightly different. Uh, but this is a price we have to pay right now uh, just to be uh, solidar with the uh, nation of Ukrainians. Uh, and uh, we started just very early because Lithuania understood that we didn't have any illusions regarding Russia. We understood that this is a long-term threat right. to European Union, to the democracy. And uh, now the countries, other countries of Western Europe should realize that we have to deal with very dangerous uh, adversary and we have to, to do uh, all the measures, okay. implement all the measures which would lead to the energy independence. Still to come, Elon Musk adds another role to his resume. All the details after the break. Welcome back. U.S. and European stocks facing pressure once again at the midweek point as the West gears up for a new round of economic sanctions on Russia. And a once dovish Fed official, Governor Lau Brainard, warning the central bank must reduce its balance sheet aggressively to control pricing pressures. Deutsche Bank now sees a chance for a soft U.S. economic landing is fading fast as the Federal Reserve shifts into tightening overdrive. Deutsche Bank now the first global banking giant to make a U.S. recession call. And all eyes on Twitter, surprising everyone, when it announced a new addition to its board of directors 
Elon Musk. The question now, what does Musk plan to do in his new role? The world's wealthiest person is now Twitter's largest individual shareholder, owning 9.2% of its shares. CNN's Paul Monica joins us to discuss. Paul, great to see you. Uh, it means more polling. I can tell you that. Um, they have a long and colourful history together. SEC violations, defamations, uh, lawsuits, uh, threatening journalists, you name it. What is he going to do, Paul? Yeah, that is going to be very fascinating to watch, Julia. As you point out, Musk has been an incredibly active presence on Twitter to the consternation of regulators. And I would imagine sometimes Twitter executives uh, themselves. But Elon Musk modifying what I find interesting, his filing when he took this more than 9% stake in Twitter, it is no longer considered a passive stake. It is an active stake. And, and he gets that seat on the board. He is obviously going to be pushing for big changes. And one of those changes seemingly might be already coming to fruition. Twitter confirming that it's working on some sort of edit feature. It's going to start with its Twitter Blue product and have an edit button there. Remains to be seen exactly how that's going to work, though. It raises questions for me about moderation. How on earth is Twitter ever going to successfully moderate its largest shareholder or individual shareholder and now board member? I don't know if they can. I mean, Elon Musk is someone that, uh, you know, clearly no one has been able to figure out how you uh, silence him. He is incredibly vocal. He will pay SEC fines, apparently, if he runs into trouble with regulators. And I would imagine that one, at, you know, people at Twitter must be hoping that he is going to be more of a cooperative force. Now that he has a vested interest in Twitter's success, it's not just a matter of him complaining as a user. He is also the largest stakeholder. You'd have to think that he will not want to do things that will damage the market value of Twitter. But stranger things have happened with uh, Elon Musk and social media before. So I don't think we can rule out anything, Julia. Yeah. Cooperative force. We have a moment of silence now as the tumbleweed goes past. Um, Musk hopefully will learn to be a little bit more of a uh, cooperative uh, player, kind of using the what you know what we all learned in kindergarten about playing nice. What a great pulpit to whack the opposition and the competition, though I have to say. And uh, I tell you what, one thing he has brought is is wealth. I mean, what a share price rally the moment that news broke. Yes, I've been told to shut up, as always. Paula Monica, thank you for that. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.